Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, and welcome to the Hobcast, episode number 102. We said that at the same time, Jinx. We, yeah, thanks. Right, well, I'll just shut up then. No, 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 no. Take it away. I mean, I shouldn't be speaking. I'm using sign language. But you are speaking. I know, but you jinxed me, so I shouldn't be speaking. Until uh, I say your name, Adrian Hobart. Oh, right, I'm back in. And Rebecca Collins, and together we represent <laughs> the Hobcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Crime. Mystery. Suspense. And thrillers. That's correct. You always throw me because you change the order and then I'm left floundering. For I mean, I should know. We've got a few, fair few thrillers under yeah, our belts And there's now. only four to remember. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm tired. It's been a really, really, really busy week. And I can't say necessarily it's been all Hobeck. In fact, it's been a lot of family stuff for me this week. It's been crazily busy it has been crazily busy and i'm just sitting here trying to remember what we've done it seems a long time ago yeah but yeah it's, it's well been uh, hither and tither and one aspect of the hobet thing that we have done of course is interview our guest for this week we have sally ann martin whose debut novel came out in october with joffy books the clinic the clinic it is indeed the clinic and uh, two further books in the pipeline yeah, from she's, her uh, very soon. She's very prolific now. Yes, she's. She's. Uh, I think she's. She's loving the life, the writer life. Absolutely, and this is a Uh-oh. book. <laughs> oh, the cat's. <laughs> As we get... speak, the cat is eyeing up the presents underneath the tree. <laughs> yeah, we're very Christmassy here. Well, I mean, perhaps I'm not feeling. I'm a bit bar humbug a little bit, but um, nonetheless, it is looking very Christmassy, and I can take no credit. It is all you and the boys, so uh, it's lovely. And uh, yeah, we're a week away from Christmas, so. You it, know, it, it, it's uh, it just life accelerates at this point. But the family stuff, well, I'll go into it later, perhaps a little bit. But um, it, it, essentially, it revolves around some not great health news for my father at the moment. So um, that's been busy. Yes. But um, maybe we should we should go wider and talk about the the publishing world. world. So, yeah, yes. the publishing world and do some news. OK, there's there's a there's a bit about. There's Look, a bit about. There is a bit about. Now, there's one story that I think it, it's not just a publishing story. Everybody is feeling it. And it is about the problems with the post. Posting stuff. Which you don't want problems when you're posting stuff at this time of year. But, unfortunately, <laughs> we do more than normal. Um, so, it, it affects Hobeck quite badly. And this is the uh, postal strikes with the Royal Mail. And I, I do sympathise to some degree with the people striking. Um, they originally were striking because they wanted more, uh, they weren't happy with their pay. 
um, apparently um, they weren't paid. A lot of the people who work for the Royal Mail, particularly the delivery people, weren't paid. Uh, or people who work in smaller post offices who aren't managers are not paid a salary as such. They're paid um, based on the amount of the business volume. that goes through yes. the, 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 their particular part yeah. of the of the, the empire. And so, you know, conditions, working conditions, and all sorts of things have have declined over the years. And they've got to a point where, you know, they just can't take it anymore. And strike action is the only thing they can do. Well, this is true across so many public services. And uh, I know there'll be many people listening to this who don't subscribe to that view and see the strikes as greedy and malicious and all that sort of thing. But that's not how I see it personally. Uh, There are a lot of people who are the working poor now because they can't afford the basics. And they're going to food banks, even though they're in public service jobs. Yeah, Be it and, nurses, firefighters, police officers, the lot. Yeah, and 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 it really shouldn't be like that. They, you know, they have really difficult jobs in some cases, mm. so, and, and many of them had no pay rises, certainly in the early years of austerity, for year upon year upon year. And if that was harsh and difficult when inflation was under two percent, now it's raging at ten percent plus. It's quite unacceptable really and you can understand why people are striking but that's our view or my view particularly well me too actually but but the 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 impact of the postal strikes on what we're doing which is sending out books people buy off our website is quite considered uh, considerable because you know we have been answering emails over the last two three weeks you have been sort of dealing with queries saying look where is it you haven't you clearly haven't dispatched it because it's you know hasn't arrived it's been eight days or something and actually, it's just stuck in the postal back backlog. Yeah, I think the the longest period we had was a couple of um, books. Uh, the uh, George Zammet series I posted um, over two weeks ago. Now it took sixteen days to get to the customer. Mm. She was she was lovely about it. She was very patient, and I all I could say was, "It's because of the postal strikes." Yeah. I've posted them. Um, well, I think, so there's there's a factor here. So. Many businesses, and it's it's completely uneconomic for us to go to uh, a private um, courier service f- to send out a paperback. It's just you know, it's no, there's no point. I'm sorry, but you know, uh, well, we co- don't charge posters in packaging anyway. Yeah, so, you know, but we couldn't afford to do that, and it, it, you know, we'd make a massive loss. But it, it's it's true that most of the courier services in the UK at the moment are also struggling to do any deliveries anything like on the time scale that they're supposed to be doing no it's and almost it feels almost like they haven't thought that christmas might cause an increase in traffic <laughs> no i think i think it is that so many so many businesses have moved away from the royal mail and that the likes of dpd and uh, every and, and and other suppliers just aren't coping mm. uh, they've had also problems with a combination of illness there's a lot of covid going about and there's also uh, the weather has really played havoc. So lots of factors involved here. Yeah. And, and then you've added in the train strikes, which carries a lot of parcel freight as well. That's true. Uh, you know, it is lots of things getting gummed up in the system. So how are, are publishers dealing with well, this? Well, it's, it's, um, there's an article on the bookseller that, that, about booksellers who um, they're basically, first of all, telling their customers, you know, you're not going to get books in time for Christmas before a certain date, which is a lot sooner than what people are probably used to. Yes. And I, I thinking about this personally, I I did try and do my Christmas shopping a little earlier, but even some of the presents I ordered two or three weeks ago are still not here. 
It makes me think, you know, are we supposed to be Christmas shopping in October? <laughs> well, in these weird set of circumstances, quite possibly. <laughs> but I think what, what it will do, and um, I dare say next week in the book, so there'll be an article saying that in-person visits to shops in the high street to find presents have gone up because you can't rely on the mail order thing. So you actually physically go to a shop to try and find something to buy somebody. And then that's probably been an increase, although probably the range of things that are available <laughs> have been reduced because of the lack of, the the lack of issues. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, it's an interesting period um, we're going through at the moment. Um, I wanted to talk about, uh, we've been talking about Penguin Random House a lot on this program over the recent months, and not least because clearly their big move to take over Simon & Schuster fell through in the United States. And uh, now the uh, chief executive officer of Penguin Random House worldwide, Marcus Dollar, has decided to step down. Oh, that is big news. It is. I've got to update the writer's knowledge book. Oh, well, there you go. No, he's he's leaving at the end of the year. And um, this is... Uh, he's had a, a pretty impactful time as the CEO, the chief executive officer of Penguin Random House. He's doubled the book division um, of the parent company, Bertelsmann, own Penguin Random House, and quintupled... Quintupled? Quintupled, that's times five. Yes, their profits. Quintupled, um, I love that. But he's stepping down, and he's also stepping down as a member of the Bertelsmann's board. Does it say who's taken his place? Uh, I'm just curious. Cause... Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to figure out what, what the... Uh, that he's left on mutual terms. Uh, it's being made clear that this is Dola's decision himself and that uh, the parent company, Bertelsmann, uh, very much regrets his decision to leave. Well, they always say that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. But on his watch, the big play for Simon Schuster has fallen down. Uh, I dare say they would have done it anyway. It's not his decision, I'm sure. He, he would have been very influential. But um, uh, let's see. What else is being said there? Uh, According to MPD Books, Kristen McLean, who is a very uh, well-known analyst on the U.S. publishing scene, um, <laughs> she says, there are unknowns at every level. There are unknowns with consumer behavior, unknowns with what retailers are doing, and unknowns at the publisher level about what to invest in right now. Well, that's our problem. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's happening to Penguin Random House. So if Penguin Random House have that problem, mm. <laughs> Uh, Penguin Random House. Did you have a guess at how many imprints they actually have under their umbrella? Oh, you know, you're asking the wrong person because I probably I could probably make a very good guess because of the yearbook. I, I'm, well, I'm going to ask you to make a very good guess. Okay, um, about forty. Three hundred and twenty-five. Oh. <laughs> okay, I was a long way off. Overall, that is amazing. I mean, there may be forty in the UK. Yeah, but three hundred and twenty-five worldwide. Wow. Uh, that is quite astonishing. It is, isn't it? Uh, he's been in charge for nine years, and uh, he became uh, CEO of Random House in 2008. Uh, following the antitrust decision in the United States, this is his statement, against the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, I have decided, after nearly 15 years of the executive board of Bertelsmann and at the helm of our global publishing business, to hand over the next chapter of Penguin Random House to new leadership. La la la. 
Can you imagine the, the, the psychological um, impact of, of leaving a job like that would have? be like not being prime minister anymore uh yeah there's a few of those knocking around at the moment do you know what i read something really interesting about you know this is a segue into something completely random but hey that's the nature of our podcast you never do things so like one that. of the books i picked up on uh one of my many trips to and from the stockport area um this week i stopped at one of the service stations and went to was it nutsford yeah nutsford as usual and uh, I picked up a copy of a book. I can't even remember the title, but the essential gist of it is debunking the, uh, the historical one in the toilet. Myths. Yeah, the one that's currently in our uh, bathroom. I've been reading it on the toilet. It's really good. Yes. Anyway, it talks about it's about ch- the the first chapter is about Churchill and the. <gasps> I know. Right. So, <laughs> have you read the bit about the extraordinary story of a woman? who found secret documents lying in a puddle during 1944 that contained the details of the landings in, uh, I think it was North Africa. Not the details, but I just, those those sort of funny little anecdotes about, like you say, finding something in a puddle. Right. So this is a a very celebrated Churchillian anecdote that has been in circulation for a few years. Not many, a few years. And the story goes that this woman who was a cleaner Mm. in one of the ministries found these documents. I think possibly she was in the Ministry of Defence, something like that. She was a humble cleaner from the East End. And she picked up these documents and realised what they were and thought, right, if I take these back into the office, I'm going to be in trouble because it looks like I've stolen them. But she decided instead to take them home. And she and her son realised their importance, (laughs) Uh, clearly. And so he decided to do the brave thing and take them back to the ministry and uh, hand them in. Yeah. And say, you know, they were found lying in the street. The story eventually, you know, lots of mandarins in in Whitehall are deeply concerned about this breach of security. And Churchill gets to hear of it. And he demands to know who was responsible for releasing these vital documents (laughs) and the plans that he'd been drawing up in North Africa. He went to to visit the troops there in 1943, 1944, fell very ill, had some cardiac episode, uh, nearly died, got back on his feet, came up with these plans. And the story goes, he then heard about this humble lady, a cleaner, saving the day and saving the nation from this terrible secret being handed into the wrong people. Mm. And he said, we should give her a damehood. And so he insisted, he put it out on the honours list. In the end, allegedly, according to the story, she was awarded an MBE and he was not happy. For finding papers in the puddle. Yeah, for saying, well, they were deeply secret papers that if the Germans had found out, you know, the the war could have been lost from a British perspective. Anyway, uh, so he then apparently, when he left left office as Prime Minister for the first time, insisted that, uh, sorry, I think it was the second time, so in 1954, something like that, he put this put this right and insisted, you know, because there was no way you can countermand this, to make her a dame. She yeah. got an MBE. Except this is all totally nonsense. And why am I relating this to a recently departed Prime Minister? Because it was nonsense created 
by Boris Johnson, allegedly. Uh, For his biography of Churchill, he came up with the story. He went round the world telling the story about how he'd heard it from Sir Nicholas Soames, who was Churchill's, uh, an MP and uh, Churchill's grandson, and used that in his book, which is full of stuff like that that he made up as original, original. It's a bit like you on the buses. Okay, yeah, yeah, it's a bit like that. (laughs) Uh, it is. Um, anyway, there you go. I digress, but there you go. That, that is, uh, quite quite a little connection. Yeah, interesting story. So um, there's an awful lot about Churchill, which is, is just nonsense. Like some of the <laughs> phrases that and the things that he is thought to have said, which actually came from popular films years before. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. So the history is full of myths like that. No, though, totally, it? totally. Yeah, it's it's written by the winners, and so you know, myths are full of it. Uh, but anyway, we'll get into our third story now. Yes, our third story, which is about, you tell me. Well, I don't know. I think you have it. <laughs> it's somewhere in this pile of paper in front of us. Well, at least it's not in a puddle. It, well, yeah. I mean, I, I I definitely printed it out. Did I put it down on the ground? No, I didn't. Well, okay. We <laughs> we have temporarily... <laughs> if, if only the people could see what we look like. We're, we're shambles. We're an absolute shambles. We're not normally this... But... Well, the bookseller has released the uh, 150 list of 150 influencers. It has, yes. So... In the UK publishing market. And uh, they're saying that the, the number one, this is a little strange, is Alice Oseman. Um, she's 27. She'd already published four novels. But the reason... Uh, and four graphic novels and two novellas, amassing prize wins and a loyal following. Nonetheless, it's fair to say that things have kicked up several notches and they're saying that she is this year's most influential person in British publishing thanks to the Netflix adaptation of her series Heartstopper. Oh, oh, which is everywhere oh. across Waterstones at the okay, moment. Okay, so I recognise, obviously recognise Heartstop. I didn't know who was responsible for it. Now, this is the blossoming relationship between two schoolboys and the tales that she's told. And I've then... seen the beginning of it on Netflix, yes. Right. So uh, this has sold now 1.08 million books and returned 9.25 million in the UK alone. And so they're now saying she is the most influential well, that person. Is pretty influential. Yeah, it is. It is. And we were just looking for people that have been on our show. Do you know what? I looked for our names. Yeah, well, optimistically. Yeah. Strangely enough, we're not there. But Kate Moss. <laughs> Kate is, Moss was there. Yeah. I, I bet she's just permanently there because of her influence with the um, women's literary. Yeah, there were award. people who are, I've seen on the list literary before. Um, but yes, L. J. Ross is another uh, familiar. Yeah, we keep asking her to come on the show. She still hasn't made it. Not yet, not yet. It'll happen. We'll, we'll get there. It'll happen. But, uh, yeah, no, okay. Well, I think we should get in. We're a bit shambling. I don't What What happened to that other printout? I've got it. Is, is this, it so it's a story about um, Booker Shaw hosting a one-day Twitter event. Was it Twitter or was it TikTok, I think? No, Twitter. So Booker Shaw, uh, a plan to host a one-day Twitter event in the new year where writers of commercial fiction from underrepresented backgrounds can pitch their novels directly to the editorial team. Okay. Sounds quite interesting, doesn't it? I, I, it's funny, I saw this and I thought, how does that work? I suppose they just, because they, they have a tweet, so that limits their word count. Yes, I guess they then would spill off into a conversation elsewhere on some other platform. But okay, look, Booker Shaw trying to find people from diverse backgrounds that are currently underrepresented and, and that's all welcome. And it's one way to do it. So if I you hashtag, so. if you put the hashtag DV Pitch Bookature, which is quite a long hashtag, <laughs> oh, um, catchy. between 9am and 9pm on the 5th of January, pitch your novels and they will have a look. 
and you never know. Well, I, I when we were talking to Matthew Smith last week, we were talking about Bukachur. And Bukachur extraordinary, really. I mean, the, most of the people who, who founded it have moved on mm. and rejoined the founder in new roles at a new publisher. But um, Matthew was saying that, that at one stage, they may still be doing this, they're publishing three books a day. I could not cope. I struggle with two a week. Yeah, um, quite. You well, know. that's unusual to do two two on the same two no, at the same time. It is. It is. <laughs> but but you know they're they're altogether a bigger outfit and, and much well, better funded and and being bought out as well. But um, three a day, and so you know when you see the sort of figures they they trumpet about how many millions of books. That's still not prob. You know, three books a day. Not a lot of authors selling lots and lots of books, maybe a few selling mega sales, but um, they have a very, very determined list of priorities in terms of, um, Matthew was saying that at one stage, it may still be the case, that Bukachur's obsession is mothers in danger. Oh, that was right, wasn't it? Mothers in peril. They just wouldn't, at this particular time when he was in touch with them, they would not look at anything that didn't have anything about mothers in danger, in peril. <laughs> so here's the advice. If you get in on uh, the Bookature thing on Twitter, you're a, 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 an author it's probably moved from on a diverse then. background. <laughs> just get the mothers in peril thing done and you're on. So um, I don't know, no, I'm being flippant. but You are, because it's probably completely different now. Yeah, it probably is. It's probably, I know, cat's in danger. I, I was know. just thinking that. I was thinking... <laughs> she is. She, if she bothers oh, me one more time solving tonight... solving crimes. Yeah, okay. No, she's, she has been bothering me the last hour or two. She has been fed now, so she should be quiet. She's sitting on my chair in front of what was watching <laughs> the, the World Cup final. Your chair? Well, the <laughs> chair that I have populated... It's probably warm from my... Uh, you posterior. Are, yes. But the fact is, I've been watching the World Cup final until a few minutes ago, um, and I couldn't quite bring myself to watch Argentina lift, lift the World Cup itself, and it was an extraordinary final. I but, didn't even uh, know who was in it. No, no, no. I know, you know, you're completely ignoring it, but you've got had your head down working. So let's uh, let's get to the interview. Yes, uh, we, we should we've do, delayed yeah. too long, and we, we, we do jabber on. Uh, let's introduce our guest then, Sally Ann Martin. And um, Sally Ann has been writing for eons. Uh, <laughs> you know, she writes uh, quite a lot of on sort of her passionate subjects like uh, uh, vegan food, one thing. Another thing that she has had a passion for, as we will hear, from the earliest of ages, horror, British horror films particularly, Hammer House style of horror films mm. particularly. She uh, has a dark side. She has very much a dark side. It's been there ever since... Yeah, year one. So that that sort of aspect of her life and her passion has been tapped into in her first book, The Clinic, and it's also drawing on her experience at a very young age. You know, just um, late teens, her first job working in the care sector at a, uh, one of the old Victorian asylums that were around the country that I think now are all closed. Yeah, they but must were be. very much a feature of lives when we were growing up yes and i had friends who had um you know mental health issues who ended up in these places yeah no it was it was fairly widespread in the 80s absolutely so uh that fascination has drawn it also uh the clinic is about issues around weight and weight loss and the culture of places that that uh, offer solutions mm and the impact it has on people's mental health. So those are the, the factors that uh, 
bring Sally Ann Martin. She spoke to us from her home in Cheshire, and it really was a great pleasure to speak to her. Let's speak to Sally Ann Martin. It's amazing to find anybody prepared to speak to us just before Christmas because it's gone mad. I know. know. It's really difficult, actually. People are saying, yes, contact me in 2023. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit like that. What are you doing? Oh, well, shopping, I dare say. But we're (laughs) delighted to be joined by Sally Ann Martin. And uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, from the madness that is Cheshire, because I got stuck there for most of yesterday and today, it felt like. Um, How's it been for you, this run up to Christmas? Um, the fact that I didn't have anything to do this weekend <laughs> tells you that I'm quite um antisocial and quiet. Fantastic. <laughs> Not so mad. I haven't put the tree up. I've done nothing. I've it's. I feel hijacked by Christmas. Is how <laughs> I feel. I got. I went to Harrogate a week ago and I bought three baubles and I've put them on the sideboard and that's as far as it's got. It really is lame. Very lame. <laughs> But, you know, they're quality baubles. They're from Harrogate, so they're going to be good. But actually, you know, I, I don't think that's that's too late because we normally put our tree up around now, and I did put it up uh, two days ago. And somebody, when I said on Facebook, I'm going to put my tree up, somebody, or I'm going to purchase a tree, somebody said, well, there might not be any left by now. <laughs> <laughs> Far humbug. <laughs> I found one easily enough. Strangely enough, there are still trees out there. <laughs> I, 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 am, I am the king of far humbug. I mean, really, I am. I I don't think I've enjoyed a Christmas since I was about fourteen. Oh dear! <laughs> no, he's very. <laughs> is there a story there? <laughs> well, you see, yeah, it's, there it's, is. it's my <laughs> birthday on Christmas Day, so I I oh. am a complete Christmas fairy. I go, I excitement from seven a.m. till I collapse at about four o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Well, that isn't that unusual because normally Christmas babies really resent Christmas because it's stealing their thunder. Well, you see, the thing is, you can milk it. You can say, I can't possibly cook an enormous meal for eight people because it's my birthday. So. <laughs> is this why Adrian hates Christmas? <laughs> Possibly. I don't know about that. I mean, the, the cooking element is the one bit I look forward to, actually. So, uh, yeah. But then I get very stressed about half an hour before we serve up and I'm swearing uh, roundly. Anyway, let, let's get into uh, into your story, Sally-Ann. Um, First of all, we'd like to celebrate with you the publication of your novel, which is fantastic. came out in October, mm-hmm. The Clinic. How has it been for you, the, the, the finally getting that book to print? Thank you. It's it's a bit surreal because I don't know what I expect of being published to be like, but a lot of it is just social media. You know, so I basically didn't move from my desk or from Twitter or Facebook or Instagram um there was no um no limousine to pick me up and take me off to fancy book parties <laughs> like you know like they're doing the films and the tv um so yeah it's been great it's been but but as soon as I finished something or submitted anything all along the line I've just started on the next book so I had about four days where I bored everyone solid on social media going my book buy my book <laughs> and I had great great bloggers involved who have been fantastic, I have to say. Um, but other than that, it's just, I just didn't leave. I've realised what being a writer is. It's just not leaving a room and keeping writing and keeping telling stories. So, yeah, I'd like to say it was more glamorous than that, but it isn't. <laughs> it, <it's... laughs> no. well, you, you could still don the dress and have a, a flute of champagne, but just without the the launch and, and the limousine. <laughs> oh, I do that daily, daily. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, routine. 
it's amazing how many perspectives we've heard that sort of feeling actually that um i think that there's there's a, tr a tremendous mystique around being a published author and the films don't do any favors it's a bit like i mean there's so many aspects of life which get glamorized don't they uh and when you actually experience it you realize it's not quite as glamorous as all that well like three course course lunches with your publisher or your agent yeah well <laughs> that's long since gone i think but uh, you're part of the joffy family so um mm -hmm. you'll have the the summer party to look forward to which we uh, haven't quite got around to, <laughs> to doing for our authors yet but the, oh but but there is something but we'll, we'll keep mm. we'll keep that secret for a little bit Oh, well, I did. I actually our before. authors listen to this podcast, so I'm going to hint there's something. <laughs> yeah, 2023 is going to have a, a, a fabulous highlight, but so we'll say no more than that. Uh, but that pr feeling of being picked up—I mean, first of all, you were—did you get your agent first and then move to Joffy? Yeah. So the in brief, the story is that I wrote my first book that's yet unpublished. It's the minute I submitted that to agents, I started writing the clinic. I thought I can't sit around. I know that's not a good thing to sit around and mm. wait for those rejections to come flooding in, which is just an inevitable part of writing as you quickly learn. Um, so I started writing the clinic and I was about three drafts in. It needed another draft. And I did a one-to-one -one agent thing with Katie Fulford from Bell Lomax Morton. And by this point, when you've had 40 rejections for your first book, your expectations, are just, you understand that it's really difficult. And we had this phone call. She was really optimistic and was like, I can sell this book. This is what people are looking for. It's northern. It's dark. Um, it's about it's women, you know, female led. Um, and I came off the phone. And I was like to my son, I think I just got an agent. But I don't <laughs> know because you don't believe it. You think, oh, yeah. And sure enough, she followed up with an email and yeah, I got my agent that way. So it was my second book. Um, I'd had a lot of ups and downs to that point. Um, yeah. So yeah, that was that. And then on to the worst thing, this is submission. You think the agent thing was bad. You think, yay. So you have to celebrate that. You've got that far. And then I went on submission for, I think it was probably about eight months in all. Mm -hmm. It went out to five or six publishers first um and the clinic is about a beauty and weight loss clinic set within an ex asylum i'd worked in a, one of the last victorian asylums in the 90s so that was where that setting came from i've spent a year years sorry on diets and you know body image and obsession and food issues so that's where that part came from mm. I think the publishers, the big publishers, were very, very nervous about that subject. They feared big social media backlash, which to me, my mentor and my agent, we were like, what? Like, this is your story. It isn't like I'm making stuff up and I have this wonderful, glamorous life and I'm going to write what it's like to have weight issues. And, you know, I know this is me. So when they said, mm, we, you know, no, on the basis of that, I was quite offended in a way mm. but this is my story you know this is true I can say these things and it's okay so what we had to, what I did was a rewrite then and the protagonist became less um overweight than she was which I thought was a really bad thing and I actually had feedback from some of my first readers who've had the same issues I have saying I thought she should have weighed more you know you had but I had to draw it back in order for 
you know publishers not to feel so uncomfortable with it yeah so put put this in the picture i mean how big a (laughs) weight loss is it between drafts then for your character uh, there wasn't i don't think there was kind of a weight like a figure on it other than her physicality her struggle you know going down a train aisle was a lot more you know a lot more dramatic and painful and painful in an emotional sense it's quite difficult to write because been you know sitting next to people and um and then that got not so difficult a little bit not so difficult I also made it more on the beauty side so that diluted the diet side in the in the original draft it was all diet it was all weight it was all about getting on scales and food and then I just made it a little bit more about the beauty side and that pressure of women to do all that yeah um and I'm Joffy may well have taken it in its first you know they're great publishers my editor Emma is brave and she wanted to explore that she thought that was important but by that point I'd already rewritten and that was the draft that was used yeah but that's interesting isn't it because that's kind of a a compromise in order to make it more commercial which is a bit of a shame well is it is it is it about commerciality or is it about that that risk averse thing that you're talking about the the fear factor because we hear this a lot um about the way that major publishers the, the the mainstream big ones are really getting very twitchy because they know that twitter is a crucible they can get broken on very very easily it's, i mean it's it, it is an opportunity for people like joffy and ourselves to be a little braver perhaps but it it it, it does strike me that uh the creative compromises that one authors are being forced to make is is a little distressing so that must have been very tough to get that message yeah it, it was very tough so I was like, and of course when you get those first rejections and they say that you feel like well how am I ever going to sell this book because that's a huge theme running through it um but I had hope with Joffy I'd known about Joffy a long time I knew they were innovative I knew they weren't bound by the same things that the major the big bigger publishers were um but yeah, it was a bit. And actually, you know, since then, feedback from bloggers, I've had amazing feedback from women who have had the same issues I have, who have loved it and been thankful for it. Um, and that's how I always knew. I know that away from publishing and away from Twitter, that there are millions of women like me and those readers who are waiting for stories about them. I, d- I wondered in the beginning whether it was just like, the issue of race in a book whether 20 years ago an Indian woman might have had trouble talking about her experience because of the language she had to use which is real language and real words that she had experienced so of course I'm using language around weight that's uncomfortable but that's the reality and that's what I wanted to write I didn't you know that's what I knew and that's what I felt and that's the darkness of it all that's the mindset of that world but it's, I think what you're saying about readers feeling that connection, though, so that's a huge positive, I think, because I think uh, with these things, people can feel very lonely and they can feel that they are the only person with the thoughts and the issues that they're dealing with. But when they read fiction, although sometimes you read fiction to escape, I think you also read fiction to have a to relate to something, don't you? Relate to mm-hmm. something about your life or to realise that, you know it's not just you it's not unique to you but there are other people who have felt the same way as you and I think that's a very special message absolutely and when I got those first reviews back from these were bloggers 
um, who worked with Vicar Instabook Tours. Like I got a couple in, I was like, okay, you know, if I get terrible reviews from here, if anyone says this, this is exactly the woman that I wanted to reach. You know, people that say, you know, say thank you. And somebody's talking about how I feel. I felt the same. I also put an author's note into the book, which I felt was important for two reasons. One, to divert anybody on social media that says you shouldn't be writing about this. You, you know, this is rude and whatever that might be. But also a lot of the readers tagged on to that author's note about my experience. So that made them just feel like there was somebody else that understood. And it's, you know, it is a huge part of the story, but I didn't set out to write anything to change change perspective or anything. It's at the end of the day, I wanted to write a thriller, a dark, pacey thriller. And to me, there was nothing darker than this, you know, the beauty and diet industry, and then put that in an ex-asylum that I knew also very well. And we had, I had a story. We had, I wrote it. no indeed um but you've been writing for a long time uh you know not perhaps to this extent in terms of bringing a a novel to the world and obviously your previous one as well but you know as a writer about issues and in uh, as a journalist this has been your your life for a long time yeah, off and on, I'd just dip in. So I, I knew I could write about things that I felt strongly about. So I'd see an issue or an article and respond to that. Um, I'd written a children's book, which was very amateurish about 20 years ago, and done a course at Liverpool Uni with Mark Roberts, who's a children's writer. Mm. Um, so off and on over the years, it was never my main job. I never thought I could write a novel because I thought an adult fiction novel was for people who went to university, had degrees and came from a posher upbringing than I did. I didn't think that was a world that I belonged in. So I did write television scripts, which I felt was very much a world I belonged in because working class characters, which I write about, are all over TV, you know, British television probably more so or equal to any others. Um, But I didn't see that in fiction, in novels. So I I wasn't sure that was a world for me, but I just set out to do it. And you proved proved the theory wrong anyway. And and you're not actually the first person who said this. Um, Do you remember Karen? Yeah. She said the same thing, didn't she? She said she thought, oh, it's for people who went to university because that that automatically means they can write books. It's not true at all. Yeah, yeah, and it's such an impenetrable world if you don't really know anything about it. I think being on, it sounds, I feel like Twitter's my life, but it feels, <laughs> you go to Twitter and you do, it's a very good platform for learning more about publishing and other writers. The publishing world seems to sit nicely on Twitter more <laughs> than it does other platforms. So, you know, the more you learn there and you see other writers and people talking there you think okay yeah I can I can have a part of this world I mean ultimately all writers and authors face the same challenge which is the blank screen at the start of the journey (laughs) so you know we've all everyone has that shared experience um unless of course they're doing longhand um but um it, it is you know that challenge of um you can start off with 
sustained enthusiasm for about the first 20,000 words or so, and then it gets tougher, doesn't it? Um, a lot of people find that slog, when they get to halfway, that's really when it gets very, very difficult for some people. Do, do you plan or, uh, or do, are you a pantser? Um, a bit of both. It starts off, usually I start off with a setting because I like spooky settings. You know, I'll always be driving past places or walking past places. My first thought will be, oh, that looks creepy or dark. I'll go in there. So that's where it starts. And then I think, well, who would be there? And it goes there. So I get the idea in my head. I write very little down, a few notes. I know the begin. I know the setting. I know the characters, but I get to know them better with each draft or chapter even. Mm. And I know the story before I start. I usually know the end. So I'm on my third book for Joffy now and I know the end. Um, I kind of know the journey. So I will start and get to about 50,000 words and then go right stop. And then I'll use the five act. I go by Will Storrs, The Science of Storytelling, which works for me. Yeah. I go back to that and go, well, does this fit with that? Because and I know it's worked because it's worked with the clinic. For me, it works. I go, does how does that fit? Have I done that? And kind of go there and just reassess um and just carry on but for the main part it's just writing and telling the story and trying to keep it in my head and hoping that it's good <laughs> yeah i know it's a good it's a good book i was listening to it in the car actually earlier uh, <laughs> will stores the science do. of storytelling <laughs> yeah well, i was thinking back between that and mick heron um which was sort of damn he's good so that was my <laughs> <laughs> you get you get quite depressed don't you when you read a really good book and you think oh god oh. this person's like so <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean it, it's it's uh, I, I think it's it's always a pleasure when you read a really good author and you think right okay i can see you know it's 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 as much as anything i'm sort of trying to get into their mindset that that created what they've written yes and you know with mick heron as i was discovering you know, for the first time, really, even though we've interviewed him, I hadn't read any in, uh, to any degree, just how brilliantly is it setting up situations and the description. He comes at it from all sorts of different angles. So it's never repetitive, never at all. It's it's extraordinary. And you know, you know how quite a lot of people will do the, uh, right, let's describe my main character because they're going to look in a mirror and um, yeah. and pick out the features <laughs> that annoy them. Well, he'll do that, but with knobs on in, in all sorts of different ways, but not without using a mirror ever. Um, it's brilliant. Anyway, I, I digress. But Will Store, a really good source um, of uh, inspiration, I think. I don't know that one. We've got it upstairs. It's, oh. it's in my, uh, well, we now have a bookshelf just full of. <laughs> it's basically you're writing how to write you... bookshelf. Yeah, it's the inspiration <laughs> yeah. shelf. I just I've listened to that at the start of every book just as a reminder because it just fascinates me because there is a science to it there is a reason why we like the same some kind of films and mm. even people telling stories around a fire however it however it's told there is a there is a you know there's a reason why certain things we need things from a story so to me it's it's just a great reminder every time I before I sit down to write I re-listen to that audio book yeah that's a very good very good piece of advice so location clearly is very important to you. When you get your setting, then everything stems from that. But take us back to the time when you worked in that building. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I did briefly do some community work in 
in one um, in Cambridge. Well, my, uh, my sister worked at, hospital. in Stafford, St. George's Hospital in Stafford, and that was a Victorian asylum. Mm. They are amazing places. Mm. Yeah, there's to go inside them, like I've never forgotten the feeling of being inside it. So basically at that time, I was about 19 or 20, mm. and I was working in nursing homes, I was working in care homes, and I wanted to move down south. And there was this advert for a big open day for this, for Hill End Hospital, which is in St. Albans. Um, and I went there and I think because it was closing, it was, at, this was right at the end. I think it had yeah. less than a year after I went there before it would close down completely. I think it was a bit of a staff crisis because people obviously were leaving to go. They knew it was closing, go and get other jobs. There are about seven wards open then. So it was gone from about 1,200 patients to, I don't know, seven wards, say 140, 200. Um, and I was kind of went for an open day, sat and chatted with somebody and I got the job. So that <laughs> <laughs> so, well, was easy, naive. Um, <laughs> There's a theme so emerging here. Same with an agent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things happen really the situation, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just say yes um so only the agent situation was much more pleasant I should say than going to work at the psychiatric at the the ex-asylum so I moved my whole life down there lived in um what they call MHOs multi-occupation housing yeah yeah. about six of us who lived so one of my character lives in a house like that so I'd also had that experience of living in a room basically and sharing a kitchen and a lounge with complete strangers who you never see you're always passing in the corridor or nervously watching TV, hoping that a stranger doesn't come in and watch with you. It's very bizarre. Um, so I started that. And as far as I can remember, I had no training, very little. It was in chaos anyway, because something had happened with a patient. So there was an investigation going on. And the first day I walked in, I was sent to Hemel Hempstead Hospital to sit with um a patient who just tried to commit suicide and I'm like what okay weekend (laughs) no no, you know you don't need training necessarily to be a care assistant but a little bit of a a gentler introduction might be nice so that was my first day and from then on in it was just seeing the most strange things you know from electric shock therapy um going down to the what felt like the basement with patients who I'd just be chatting to through the day and we'd say oh you you know you've got this treatment now I had no idea what that was you know so I'd be chatting to you know they were like friends we were there every day together and then next thing you're wheeling them down to this what feels like a very archaic treatment um you know still controversial now it's still used but Lots of people don't agree with it. And there's been a lot of fallout from treatment in the 50s. So as you know, from somebody that had come from a very genteel nursing home, talking to the elderly about their previous lives and isn't this lovely and fun, I was going to this Victorian hospital that still felt very Victorian. You know, you're in a big day room filled with smoke. I can't remember if we were allowed to smoke then as well. But the patients certainly were <laughs> they were just like smoke filled room um, and, you know, women's beds, one side, no doors to the day room and then men's beds, the other side, no doors. So anyone could wander anywhere. Um, little, just little. 
I don't know. I, I think I just was put in some very strange and possibly dangerous situations. Um, there was still the padded cell when I was there. There were, you know, a bell would ring and seven burly white uniformed men would just appear from nowhere. A door would go, Pajung! and they'd run in and a patient would just be like her, taken to the ground and injected and then be out of it. And I'd be like, okay. All right. <laughs> like, um, wait, what happened there? And it was just this really strange environment in a building, you know, that's crumbling. No money's being spent on it now because it's going to go to developers or whatever's going to happen to it. And I just remember walking down the corridor one day on my own and thinking, I don't know what's going to happen to this building, but I do know that they could make the most beautiful apartments. I would never want to be in one because I felt that. There'd been, so it's, it opened in 1904. So there'd been almost a hundred years of these things happening within its walls. And it just felt like that held it. You know, it the walls contained all of those dark things that had happened. Mm. Yeah. So it had that, that sort of vibe, which I think buildings do. I, I, I am a big believer <laughs> in this. Yeah. The idea yeah, that I am too, actually. ghosts in a traditional sense. Yeah. But when when high emotions happen somewhere, that something stays in that building, mm. I think, yeah. or in place. It didn't. I was there for about, I lasted for about four months. And by the end, I honestly didn't know whether I should be sat in the chair as a patient or leaving as a member of staff. It was. And it isn't the patients at all. It's nothing to do with that. It's the regime. It's, you know, I felt, often felt that they, I hoped they'd go somewhere different because it felt like that building drained a lot of people. Um, Some of the male staff was, that was, I'd rather, let's just say I'd rather sit, you know, I spent a lot of time with the patients. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's pretty dark. Um, You're drawn to dark things though i mean yeah. reading your biography uh, your uh you know um biog um you have a, a love of of horror movies and, and things like that so what do you think it is that draws you to that side of life i don't know <laughs> because i was writing uh my um newsletter today talking about all the happy funny christmases i had because i had a very happy childhood mm. so there was nothing dark about it um but then I've got this, I was Friday's child when I was about 10. So our village, I'd been um, the carnival queen's flower girl. So the queen has said, oh, I know a little girl who you could, act, who the Derbyshire Times could interview to be, you know, she'll be lovely. She'll be great. So they came round and she was, there's a quote in it that says, I like to watch horror films, but they must be in colour because of the blood. <laughs> and there's a photograph and they put a, they put me with a mirror and lipstick in my and it's clearly the interview has not you know the picture does not represent that child who's talking and I can see that I've distressed her because she talks like we managed to escape before she told us about her operation <laughs> that she's had whoa <laughs> yeah. so I don't know and I, I would go into the video shop with my dad and I would go straight to horror and I was not, you know, by the time I was nine or 10, I'd seen most of the Friday the 13th type amateur film, Poltergeist. For my 11th birthday, I had Poltergeist 
as the as the party film. <laughs> really? Um, there were kids. Yeah, eleventh birthday. Nobody was warned. Nobody was protected. <laughs> Fantastic. It was like half the children were crying. My friend Hester had told me she wasn't allowed to ever come to a party again <laughs> at my house. And I spent most of the time in the kitchen because that's where the presents had been taken. So I'd seen that film. I was yeah. like, come on, friend. You said, well, let's all sit down and watch. Oh, I've seen this. So I got up to open all the presents and left like these wide-eyed, pale-faced children to watch Poltergeist. And yeah, I, I, I have no idea why I, why that was allowed. Or I think I was the third child, fourth bit, you know, my dad. Oh, yeah, it doesn't matter by that point. Yeah, I was the like, third child as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I can remember watching. Uh... They're thrown up, not brought up, yeah. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I was also probably very persuasive and um, just get my own way. Um, so, yeah, that and that's continued. Hammer House of Horror. I watched yeah. all those on a Saturday night. Tales of the Unexpected. Oh, I loved that, though, because they were so quirky. I, uh, I I have a I have a confession to make. I I I tweeted. <laughs> they were, um, what's her name? Um, on six music. Uh, we were listening to the other day the Welsh. No, oh, Terrace. Terrace Matthews. Matthews. Yeah. So she was talking about the tales of the unexpected, and I tweeted in and said that my aunt was the one of the women oh. who was doing the the arm dancing. You were singing. Oh. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's cool. No, he's lying. Yeah, I was fibbing. Oh, I mean, it's something that I would you do. You told me that once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Me and I did believe him. So, uh, no, my auntie, auntie Diana was over in, um, it, it, it still is in California. She wasn't anything to do with uh, the Tales of Unexpected. <laughs> what I love about the Tales of Unexpected was that Roald Dahl wrote so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that he was able to, I mean, his his children's books. Are, they are very dark. They, they? They, they really are. They are. I mean, they, they, they for, you know, for the age group. And it's fantastic that there was actually a time when that sort of thing would be acceptable. Nowadays, if he put it forward, I'm sure every single major children's publisher would run away from it. <laughs> yeah. But um, he wrote a lot of those things. So he was able to give his really dark side a chance to play. But they were they were brilliant. Um, I think there's a real opportunity that TV is missing at the moment, actually taking that sort of drama and, and developing writers in that field well we we, we were at um, Halifax Noir last week and it was um Liz Green from the uh, radio BBC BBC Radio Leeds yeah, yeah she said that the trend for TV is going towards crime without bodies so not quite no cozy bloods, no murders just they don't want to show the gore you know stolen tractors that sort of thing they don't want it to be too dark <laughs> kind of is <laughs> by definition <laughs> It is, it is really, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, with that, with that, (laughs) (laughs) with that sort of um, background, I mean, it's quite, quite difficult to. uh, Did you find sort of kindred spirits as you got older, or or, or did you stand alone by loving all this stuff? Well, they all left my birthday party one by one. (laughs) Yeah. I actually don't know. I've got a couple of friends from that time. They were like, yeah, you were. If anything horror is on the internet, I get tagged into it. <laughs> right. Um, at college, when I went to college, I did drama at college, and there's a friend of mine, Derek Pikett, and he always liked horror, so he was a kindred spirit, and he's gone on to do great things, writing biographies. He's very low-key. Um, but, I mean, he's like... Christopher Lee wrote his foreword in one of his oh, wow. biographies on Michael Ripper. And he's like, yes, like, you know, he went in a limousine with Christopher Lee to somewhere. 
I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to like boast about this. <laughs> He's like, no, and he never does. So he was definitely a kindred spirit and the Hammer House stuff and all the Amicus stuff and that those kind of yeah. things. Um, if you were to pick one of those films, what, what's what's the one you go back to? I like comfort horror. <laughs> well, I've got lots of comfort horror. So, but Hammer House would be the house that bled to death. Yeah, it's the birthday party one, and where the pipes all open. I love that. Um, I love the, um, even though it's really some terrible acting in it in some ways. Uh, the Witchfinder General, <laughs> mm. Matthew Hopkins, with Vincent Price running around East Anglia, uh, causing havoc. And um, oh gosh, his name came to me a moment ago. And I seem to be having short-term memory losses. Uh, Ian Ogilvy as the yeah. the dashing hero, who's a member of the Roundheads. Is it? Yeah, I think he is. Um, who rides back from the Civil War to find that his 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 good lady and her father have been tortured. It's quite something. Um, but that's one of my favourites. I don't, I don't know why it appeals to me. I think it's that historical setting. Um, I enjoyed that. I saw that for the first time, actually, not so long ago. And I did enjoy that. Yeah. I like Vampire Circus. That's my favourite Hammer film with Adrienne Corey, who's a great Hammer villain and uh, obviously a woman vampire. Um and I'd watched that from when I was nine or ten. Yeah, they're quite quite erotic vampire stories as well. That era, you know, the seventies were just a, a hotbed of inappropriate. <laughs> they were totally. That was our sexual education, wasn't it? The seventies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of well, this is what I keep saying to people who who weren't you know didn't experience the seventies. <laughs> you know, you've got to appreciate when we grew up. I everything Tim was Hill was your typical bloke. Everything was inappropriate. Dick Emery, you know, <laughs> it, it was all inappropriate um it's, it's hard to get back from that you do have to repro because you've seen that as children and in your teens and you go okay that's a world you move on you just and then now people go yeah people can't say that you can't do that and we go okay i need to reprogram everything i've learned from because that was perfectly normal that behavior you know it is it was strange time to 70s if they if a woman's clothes could fall off in a film they fell off in a film. Well, like the carry-on films. I yeah. mean, yeah. I thought that's what you go out to work and the men would just ogle you constantly. Well, it's that, it's that thing that Jonathan um, <laughs> Jonathan Ross keeps talking about, you know, thank you for, uh, you know, getting me through my teenage years with Barbara Windsor, you know, watching carry-on camping. Yeah, that yeah. classic scene. Yeah, absolutely. Really, when you look back now, you think, okay, no, no wonder, no wonder that behaviour's <laughs> happened if everyone grew up thinking that was okay. <laughs> yeah i guess so i guess i'm trying to sort of forgive myself for anything that i might have done in the past but anyway um it's uh it, it's fascinating i mean you know going tracing back when one becomes aware of these things and drawn to them it is that period isn't it i mean for me it was science fiction at that period of my life um i, I mean i don't really obsess about it now i enjoy it but, yeah, but you, you're it. saying it's an influence on oh massively hmm. massively and you think about how dark science fiction was in those days Blake seven some of the stuff in there it's unbelievable it was on main street tv eight o'clock on a, on a Monday <laughs> evening well, well, who was terrifying as well, well uh, yeah i mean that's you know as i argue it, it is it's i think doctor who apart from sort of famous five stories is everyone's gateway into crime fiction because every single story is essentially an investigation of some form of crime and quite a lot of it is mass murder <laughs> still <laughs> by, a crime <laughs> by whatever alien or whatever <laughs> anyway we digress we digress 
That's yeah, and I, I haven't I haven't watched. You're, you're probably going to end the interview now, but I haven't watched much science fiction. I apologize. Really? Ah, yeah. okay. I guess that's say interesting because that, but... I, I would have thought, as a Hammer horror fan, you would watch something like Peter Cushing turning up as as the you know the big the the number two villain on Star Wars in the first. Film yeah, no, I haven't never watched Star Wars. Oh no! Oh no! Well, this I'm is interesting. This is interesting. So Peter Cushing is, you know, everyone, you know, you're a fan of Hammer Horror and seen probably he did about what sixty films for them or something like that, something crazy, with Christopher Lee quite a lot of the time. So one of them would be, Van, uh, you know, Van Helsing, and the other would be Dracula, and you know, blah blah blah. But he basically took that persona onto the set of Star Wars as the sort of uh, you know, Darth Vader's boss in that particular film. And it's it's an extraordinary performance. It's that tight performance of uh, an era, you know, that sort of patrician figure who is given orders and just sticks to them. Yeah. Um, he blows up a planet, for goodness sakes, in the in the film, you know. But apparently, and this is I, I digress again, on the on the set, his boots didn't fit him. So they had to shoot him from about the knees upwards because he had these sort of knee-length boots uh, that were too tight for him, and they were giving him. T- so he wore slippers on the uh, set. See, because he didn't want to show his feet. Yeah, yeah. right. I yeah. Was why? No, no, no. Okay. That's why okay. he had to wear. He had to make sense. He had to wear his bedroom slippers to uh, to get through the shoot. But anyway, that's. Was uh, he a baddie? Baddie. He was Grand Moff Tarkin. Wear slippers. Yeah. I feel like Peter Cushion would have just been very polite. That in my head, he would have gone, "It's you know, excuse me, um, these yeah. boots don't fit any." Okay little wanted. granddad's those little old tartan slippers out. Yeah, he would have been. He would have smoked a pipe probably between scenes, and yeah. uh, and Christopher Lee, what an extraordinary figure. Um, uh, I mean, so many, so many stories about him, but he was one of the greatest fencers in the country, uh, the country's history. What making fences or fencing? No, 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 fencing. No, he was, he <laughs> was amazing. Himself. Um, apparently anyway uh so in terms of where you're taking your books next yeah what's next so i've just um sent one back to the editor well um a few uh weeks ago and that is setting a nursing home it's another setting it's like a manor house type setting uh, an old you know a family that's having to branch out to make money you know when you've got a big house and some yeah. it's very expensive to run so they turn it into a a nursing home and that's more based on witchcraft um kind of going back to the 70s when witchcraft in the north when a lot of women were turning to it so it's not people flying around on brooms or harry <laughs> potter type stuff it is kind of wicker yeah um and tangles uh, hanging in woods and things like that yeah all my oh. office <laughs> <No. laughs> My son was horrified. He just walked in and was like, please tell me this is all going to stop when you finish this book. <laughs> and I ha- no, I bought this. I bought um, a puppet doll. So like a voodoo doll. Yeah. I got. I get very into it when I start writing. I just really enjoy just going into that world and everything becomes that. So I have lots of witchcraft stuff in that thing behind in there. You see my pots yeah. and herbs and whatnot. And I got a puppet doll, which is a voodoo doll, and it's a bad magic doll. So it's got everything in it, and it kind of arrived. And I'm like, ooh. And so I I went and bought a black stone, which is supposed to, like, ward off the evil in it. And it's kind of looking at me there, and I don't know what quite what to do with it. I'm sure there's a process for 
making it not do bad things um but yeah so uh, yeah i get very into it so yeah it's a witch well, it's given me the ebg business <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting because we've we, we, one or two of our, our authors have also written for us in in these fields and um and touched on on <laughs> on, on you know uh the supernatural the paranormal well i have a recommendation if you haven't read it the bleeding i can't remember the name of the author but that's touches on witchcraft and that gave me the ebgbs i was reading it under the duvet the other night (laughs) (laughs) i like whatever i do i want i try as much as possible to keep a step in reality where people can go that could happen so i like the fact you know i saw so many documentaries on these sheffield covens they were in the 70s you know so it's not like i didn't just make that up you know people did do that so nobody can say to me yeah it's make-believe go no it's not make-believe whether you and I met with a witch I met with a practicing witch in Chester and because I got a problem so I was studying wicker stuff and I was like oh this is really nice this is crystals and yeah elements and it all was very peace and love and a bit you know kind of yoga meditation which is great but it wasn't what I needed I needed a curse I needed something bad to happen so I, I contacted somebody who practices traditional witchcraft in a Welsh witch and met with her in Chester. So we chatted. I was like, well, I don't know if you want to answer this, but I need to know, do you do baneful magic? And she's like, yes. I was like, oh, thank God. Yes. I was like, that's brilliant. Tell me how that happens. Tell me how that works. And they basically meet, there's, the coven meets, and if somebody's going through a bad time, say there's a woman in a violent relationship, she can go to them and say, I want you to curse him. And then they will meet together. And it's like a jury. They'll meet and discuss however long it takes and say, are we going to do this curse? And then they'll go back to the person and say, we've agreed to do it or we haven't agreed to do it. Wow. And so my thought was, even if you don't believe in any of that, even if you think, does anybody really want nine men or women meeting together somewhere and putting out that bad thought in the world for you I, you know to me that's real horror anyway yeah um, whether you believe it or not that's that's quite a dark thing that's happening yeah that is, that is that's really dark isn't it but I know what you mean because even the thought of it happening and then if something bad happens even if it's a coincidence you would never know whether it's a coincidence or whether it's to do with the curse yeah. And sometimes so I was like, well, what if you really want, you know, what if you agree to it or one doesn't agree to it? Well, we don't do it. Um, and and then if a woman comes and she's bruised and it's very obvious, she says, I will do it very quickly and we'll gather very quickly and we'll put the curse on the person. And I was like, OK, I'm like, can curses skip generations? Because I needed that too. Yeah, we can do it. If they don't want it to happen to them, they can pass the curse on to future generations. So even, like I say, if you believe it or not, that happens and that still happens today. Yeah. And people are still meeting and performing rituals. So that was great. I was very, very polite to her. And I'll be yeah, very okay. polite. <laughs> Let me get these. Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy all your books. <laughs> that's, I'll be your friend forever. Well, that's astonishing. It's a, it's, a, it's a darker version of Rent-A-Ghost, isn't so it? I always, fancied, <laughs> I always fancied doing a love potion with someone, see if it works. Yeah, all that. Yeah, though it's all that. Go to Etsy. You can buy all these, all the stuff on Etsy. I've spent. Yeah. Oh, I can yeah. buy a love potion and just try it on some random person. 
<laughs> Am I not random enough? <laughs> I'm pretty random. I mean, this interview's proven pretty random. <laughs> I don't know whether we should go to the uh, the random question at this point, actually, because it seems like the segue. Because uh, you said the word random. Well, yes. no, not so much that, but I mean, you know, it does feel like, yeah, I don't know whether you can follow witchcraft with a random question, but... Let, I love, I love how you're you're talking to me who sat with a voodoo doll in front of me and a crystal on top of it to ward off evil and wondering if I can handle randomness. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I dare say you can, but you can, know, yeah. but but many people have, have failed it. No, no, I wouldn't say failed. They, 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 they quiver. They, yeah, you yeah. can see them quivering at the thought. Right. <laughs> so with your own brand. Like to think about things, but we'll go. <laughs> of, of podcast magic. Here we go. Rebecca's random question. Well, of course, it has to be a Christmas-themed one because I sit here with a tree in the corner blinking at me. Um, what is your favourite or quirkiest family Christmas tradition that you have, your family? Uh, my, It will be from childhood, and I still want to do it now, but I've never been allowed to do it, is that we used to have Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve so that my mum didn't have to do any cooking on Christmas Day. My dad could just drink whiskey all day and <laughs> from the morning. Um, so we, I thought that was normal. I didn't think that was quirky. It's only now that that seems like some people might do in Scandinavia or just some romantic tradition. But that was our Sheffield house um, tradition <laughs> to have Christmas Day on Christmas Eve. And yeah, I'd like to bring that back. I think the world should do that. Uh, do you know what? We've probably solved the problem that you've always had, which is you haven't. To... No, I don't want to cook on Christmas Eve either, though. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, that would help you for your birthday, wouldn't it? That's that's fascinating. I'm trying to think of well, what traditions we used to have. The, the, well, related to this a little bit is that my fam, my family, as I was growing up, we always opened the presents after lunch. And I thought everybody did that, but actually they don't. Some people have a present orgy first thing in the morning and then yeah. that's it, that's it, they're done. No, I had a friend at junior school, Melanie, Melanie Green. I remember going to her house and they're saying, we open our presents at one o'clock after lunch. And I was like, oh, you poor, poor yeah, yeah, child. Because yeah. I'm six and I was six in the morning. I got an annual, probably three in the morning, got my Bonte annual wrapped up. I go, just go back to bed and read that. <laughs> four hours please and come back so I couldn't believe that there were children that had to wait until after lunch to open presents well in our family sometimes it's three or four o'clock by the time we get to it mm. because of the meal and so it's dark and we still haven't opened our presents Didn't we, even get we still one do before. it now and my, my children they tolerate it don't they they, they do yeah <laughs> no no we were definitely sort of first you know crack of dawn kind of yeah, present you might as well go back to bed and stay there which is pretty much what i did <laughs> you know do you get your birthday to... presents in the morning then you could split the day ah, well I do, I do tend to do that i tend to open the birthday presents so maybe that's partly where it came from because it sort of splits the two then but yeah so mm. so you're think... happy oh, i'm feeling you're all a flutter in... of excitement happy... thinking about it <laughs> you're happy in that world and then everyone who hasn't got a birthday in the morning in your family is like yeah <laughs> <laughs> the afternoon <laughs> <laughs> true and i guess uh, the only tradition i can think of is we always used to stand when the national anthem played at the end i of don't the, believe that, that is... Queen, <laughs> queen's message there's no way i would stand for the national anthem we we did we we used to stand it was, uh, my grandmother <laughs> used to insist on it um she she was you know 
I think I think she thought she was royalty in some some way. I yeah, think. my grandma was a bit like that actually. Had a sort of royal presence. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Very much so. But she used we... to sell gloves at Harrods. Um, <laughs> so I'm sure she got sort of these grand airs as a result of that. Um, we used to have to watch the royal. My dad made me. He wouldn't have been in a fit state to make anyone stand um, by three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Bless him. But we used to have to watch the. We watched the royal weddings from start to finish as children because he said you will remember this for the rest of your lives and you'll really thank me then and just I never really have <laughs> no I had similar because the Diana and Charles and Diana got married when I was about eight and then Fergie and whatever her Andrew, Andrew. <laughs> and the same I remember just five years later yeah yeah bored to death playing with Lego while watching Royal Wedding yeah yeah, there's there's no benefit that I can say with hindsight. No, okay, that's a sad note to to to, oh. to bring our interview. <laughs> but it's so long, drawn out. I could show you the voodoo doll. That could change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind if I get out of the box and something? No, just like the screen goes blank. Something terrible happens. Yeah. Well, if it did not, oh, I'd be really spooked. <laughs> it's quite creepy. Oh my word, that is creepy. And That's it comes, really creepy. It's got all these things that I don't open that come with it, like packages of stuff that I'm supposed to burn or I don't know oh what these word. things are. I've got, yeah, and it comes in all this red. Ew. Oh, dear, the things you so Actually, notes. my heart chilled. It's very, you know, there was a definite... <laughs> no, there were, I had a moment just then when you showed that doll. No, that's just indigestion. <laughs> 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 well, you don't, don't live with this voodoo doll and fear of it. That's your happy moment. I I will take the the um bane of living with him or her. Yeah, yeah, them. I don't know what you know. How well, do they identify? It is a So yeah, I yeah, I just um, am very kind and worshipful to this doll, and I will be forever. I, think you need to I be can't do anything, can I? What if I bury it and? That set does something. I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, you're you're this attached is to dilemma, life. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, on that thought, uh, <laughs> and hopefully we'll be able to speak to you in the future uh, when many books down the line. But who knows what the voodoo doll's going to do in between times? But um, it's it's, <laughs> I'm getting I am getting slightly freaked out now. It's been an absolute pleasure <laughs> to speak to you, and I think this is probably. Our version of a Christmas interview, which will yeah, because we probably won't have one next week. I don't think not no. not an interview anyway. No, but um, look, it, Sally Ann, all um, best of luck with living with your voodoo doll uh, <laughs> and with your writing career. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you so much for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. Well, we had a an opportunity to indulge our passion for reminiscing about our childhood. Well, the seventies a... just was a decade, all of its own and we were talking about this morning weren't we and when we got up well sally ann also she she published a um a blog um today on twitter and in her blog she was talking about uh her 70s christmas from her childhood mm. and i read that and i thought yep yep i remember that yep we did that i think there's something about people of our generation who grew up in the 70s and early 80s the things we did for christmas was feel that they were much more universal than they are now the memories seem the same. The decorations are the, from mm. the same, like Woolworths. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think you know... Eggnog. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Christmas telly was a special thing oh, as well. Oh, absolutely. There wasn't a day... You, you know, the Radio Times, I would pour over it um, and, 
you know, ring all the things I wanted to watch. We did too. And we'd fight if there was a clash. Oh, yeah, a big time. Big, big fight. And we would insist on watching Top of the Pops as well, much to the old people's. <laughs> Humph, yes. <laughs> you know, Roy Wood and Wizard out for the 15th time. And I wonder how many people row. watched Dirty Den and Angie. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, memorable, very memorable. Well, Christmas it was episode. about 28 million people, so I can yeah. give you the answer on that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was, it was was extraordinary. Really. But then the Morecambe and Wise show in the evening and things like that. Oh, Val yeah. Dunican and his jumpers. Oh, boy, and... yeah. <laughs> I stumbled upon uh, a Desert Island disc. I was listening to Radio 4 Extra, and there was a Desert Island discs excerpt with Roy Plumley was still doing it, the creator of the program, uh, interviewing Val Dinikin. And it was just extraordinarily uh, hesitant, actually. Oh, really? Because Val Dinikin was the king of sort of cardigan smooth, wasn't he? Oh, he, he? totally cardigan smooth. But actually speaking as himself, he was terribly inhibited. And Roy Plumley was very methodical and poised type of presenter. You mm. won't remember him, but he was sort of, I dare say. But... Um, you know, he did it for about 30 years. He created the format and uh, he's still credited at the end of each yeah. episode. But um, it, it it really, it didn't bear any resemblance to the nature of Desert Iron Disc now because most of the guests you get on Desert Iron Disc have done this dozens of times before, except they haven't nominated their books and their their records and all that sort of thing and what they're going to, luxury item they're going to take on an island. But the fact is, they're used to talking about I was going to say, they're more experienced, aren't they? Yeah. And, but, and it was just a, you know, Desert Island Discs preceded a lot of them and hardly any talk shows. I mean, at that point, they would have been Parky and, and, and a few other things. But, you know, the the, the level of, of appearances that, you know, if you can get the publicity behind you when you're launching a book or whatever it might be or an album to places you can go and talk about yourself and your stuff and your creation. Uh, legion well, I compared mean, to theirs. Even period. just simple podcasts such as this one. Yes, yes. And, you know, <laughs> it is, well, I think we've got an opportunity as we reflect and going into Christmas. And we ought to say, uh, please forgive us. We're going to take a week off because um, it's Christmas. It's Christmas. It's, it's Christmas Day week today. Today is Sunday, as we right. record this. So Christmas Day is a week so today. So it's your birthday. Uh, Boxing Day is is the day after your birthday. We've got Christmas. We've got an awful lot of things going on. Um, you know, all sorts of bits of the family coming and going, and and uh, it's 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 got a bit crazy. Uh, and the reason is my my dad's got COVID, and um, you know he got it caught it at the we think at the hospital where he was getting a an angiogram, which revealed some big difficulties with his heart so it's all been a bit fraught because uh members of my family are over from australia uh i haven't seen them for three years and so all of our christmas plans are up in the air a bit yeah and, and, it's, and it's involved a lot of driving and yesterday i ended up <laughs> driving all over the place dropping people off and picking them up from university and all sorts it yeah. was kind of crazy um absolutely well, i didn't expect to see you today because uh, you've been staying with your dad because you mm-hmm. were up um mm. to look after him before he had the procedure and then you were mm-hmm. look, you looked after him afterwards as well and then you were supposed to go again um mm-hmm. no, I was but you be, couldn't uh, uh, because of the a, covid <laughs> absolutely and i was supposed to be a taxi driver and i ended up taking one son to sit, pick up the other son from university simply because their washing machine's down and yeah oh, it was crazy it was just one of the maddest days i've ever known but it's been a bit like that and i think that yeah do you know what we've earned a little christmas breakette but we will do something 
between now and New Year. Oh yes, yeah. so we'll have a, have a show, a sort of a Christmas New Year crossover special. Absolutely, ooh, ooh, tinsel show. So, given this is the last episode of the Hopcast Book Show before we get to Christmas, I guess the one thing we wanted to say was to thank all of you for listening to us this year. the The podcast has gone from strength to strength, is picking up you know momentum in terms of the people who listen to it. Um, the the sort of anecdotal feedback we get from people is fantastic. Uh, we love doing it. We oh, lo- totally. So lo- highlight my week. And we are so grateful to the guests that we've had and the ones to come for, for the year ahead. To think that we've done 102 podcasts is amazing. And really. it was it was around, um, well, it was just after New Year, two years ago when we started it. it that's right. That's right. So that, and that was quite, for me, that was terrifying. Yeah. But. I love it now. In fact, I get quite excited. So today, Sunday, we've been saying all day, oh, we need to do the podcast, we need to do the podcast. And I've been like, oh, when are we going to mm. do it? Because I mm. love it. Absolutely. Uh, no, it's uh, it's been an absolute uh, blast, and it, it still is. And we'd like to wish you all a wonderful and just a fantastic Christmas and festive period to come. Um, you know, we're looking forward to ours and uh, bringing all bits of the family and then we've got some new new year plans which we hadn't expected to come out you know last minute but very welcome seeing old friends as well so some things to look forward to and next year so much to look forward to again um as we try and take hobeck and the hopcast itself uh, into the stratosphere yeah well certainly into new heights and uh, into (laughs) new avenues so um it really remains for me adrian hobart and me rebecca collins to wish you a fabulous Christmas and uh, also happy New Year and a happy New Year. But uh, we'll speak to you yeah. very, very soon. Keep that. Keep your eyes peeled for the uh, for the new edition of the Hobcast episode one hundred and three with an as yet unknown guest. We'll we'll figure something out. But uh, it's been brilliant and uh, yeah, happy Christmas. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. 